Well, happy Resurrection Day. It's a great day. I'm excited. The, technically, a, mo- a lot of people don't realize this, but every single Sunday is Resurrection Day for the church on the church calendar. But we always celebrate it, especially one time a year, and especially this year, because we could sure use some resurrection, I think. And we're seeing it, and it's a great day. It's a wondrous day. And I just want to get into uh, what the day means and, and to say that we believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead based on eyewitness accounts, people who actually have recorded what they saw on that day. And you might say, reasonably say, well, why would you believe that? Because people tell us stories all the time. You know, politicians tell us stories. Hollywood people tell us stories. In fact, some of us, most of us, sit in front of the television and, um, you know, uh, watch stories that aren't true, but they're entertaining every single night. And... and, and so the question is, why would that be? And if that's a question for you, I honor you for question, wondering about that. Even if you're a believer for a long time, why do we believe again? Uh, here, here's the thing. One little bit of information is to, give you, is, is to think about the fact that, that these people who record what they saw on that first day, they didn't believe it at first either. That's how the Gospels wind up. So today what I want to do is is pull back a little bit and then get detailed into that day and then spread out what does it mean uh, for us. Uh, Because here's the reality. When you pull back a little bit, when you come to just a a few weeks, maybe a week, we're not exactly sure where, uh, just before the crucifixion, Jesus actually raises a guy from the dead. It's a very famous story. It's a story of a guy named Lazarus. Friend of Jesus, a wealthy person, well-known in the city of Bethany, which is just two miles from Jerusalem over the, over the, on the other side, the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. The town is still there. It's a lot different now, but it's still there. And so he had raised this guy from the dead. When something like that happens, I mean, the rumors just are flying. The rumors are flying, and so by the time Jesus is coming over and coming down the Mount of Olives on that donkey's colt, the crowds are going crazy. They're going wild, okay? And, and, and uh, um, you know, th- this is the part sort of where you, you get in the, in the movies that are sort of Christianized and everything is squeaky clean and Jesus talks in a British accent and all that kind of stuff. You don't really get that. Uh, in this part, but this is the part where we're going to discover what the people at HQ at Jerusalem, the priests, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees were saying and what they were doing, okay? And you get some of that there, but uh, by the way, uh, just as a side note, a footnote, you can, you can have this for free. Uh, more recently, there are some uh, re- reasonable depictions of Jesus, uh, okay? Uh, one of those, I think, is a, a TV series called The Chosen, that uh, if you don't know about it, your kids know about it. Um, Season two drops either today or tomorrow. I'm not sure which. You might want to check it out. But anyway, back to the story. They're in HQ. In fact, we have recorded for us what they uh, said. What, what, What they said. In John chapter 11, we've been starting looking at John last week. John chapter 11 says that uh, the religious leaders in their headquarters in Jerusalem are, are there and they're, they're gathered together and they're trying to think, what should we do about this? Because here's what they say. They say, if we let this go on, everybody's going to believe in him. And you, 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 know, you and I, we go, well, that's a good thing, isn't it? And they're saying, no, it's not a good thing. Because if everybody believes in him, then we're going to lose our authority and our power. Does that sound familiar? Just asking. But the reality is, is that that's what they were afraid of. And so 
they tried to put it down. They tried to quash this. So to, to try and get at the understanding of what this eyewitness stuff and why it matters to us today, I want to look at John's account, and then I want to take you to one more place and show you some really stunning information that are, is really, I think it should, it should be mind-blowing, and I think it is mind-blowing. And it's heart-opening in so many ways. John, the apostle, you know, you, he, there's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John's the fourth one. He's, he's the, oh, the oldest one. He's the one that was written the last. John uh, has this ring, just like the other three gospels, but really John, because he was there, he claims to have been there on that day. John has the ring of eyewitness account to it because he, in, in the resurrection account in John chapter 20, John uh, is expressing exactly what he saw. See, here's, here's, the, here's how the gospels sort of present this whole resurrection thing. They say, uh, we were there, this is what we saw, you decide. We were there, this is what we saw, you decide. See, the reason that's such an important piece is because so many people, especially people who haven't read the Bible lately, the New Testament, they think to themselves, well, the Bible is just full of these fantastical stories, or else they think it's just full of this really, you know, uh, emotional manipulation kind of stuff that just try to get at the core. For, and people who are hurting and need something, they go to that that seems to help them, so they just get sucked into it. That's kind of what people think the Bible is, but it's not that at all. It's we saw that, this is what we, the, the, we were there, this is what we saw, you decide. If, for example, like I said, everybody at the end, is, it's sort of like they, they believe kind of something, but then they don't believe, and then they believe again. They don't believe until they do, just like all of us. It's just what you'd expect. Uh, and, and the people involved, they're people that are normal people with normal sins and normal struggles. Normal, it's just what you'd expect. Not, a, not some puff job of a story. It's like, this is what we saw. This is how it happened. Let me, let me show you how John does it in John chapter 20. For example, in, in, in John chapter 20, the first 10 verses, we have the story of Mary Magdalene, Peter, and John going to the tomb and finding it empty, okay? And they didn't understand at first what they had eyewitnessed. Think about this. The women were first at the tomb, okay? That's significant, and it's not just a gender statement, it's significant because it, it, it's, it's one point in the direction that this is an eyewitness account. Because in those days, uh, women were even less uh, uh, in a position to be the first ones, to be the heroes. The men were supposed to be the heroes. The men weren't supposed to be the cowards. They weren't supposed to be hiding. And yet, John, as he records this, admits and says it was the women first. In fact, in John's case, it was one woman, Mary Magdalene, who was uh, a former prostitute uh, who had been uh, saved by Jesus and had her sins forgiven and her life had been completely transformed. And by the way, as a side note, because you may have heard this even in this world or maybe from a college professor, the other three gospels say a whole bunch of women went. It wasn't just Mary, but the women were the brave ones that went early in the morning to look at the tomb. And they were the first ones that saw it. The men didn't believe them. They called them nonsense. Except Peter and John thought there was enough truth. They better go see what was going on. But, but here, here they, the, 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 the critics who of the gospel say that they can't be true, they say, well, that's a contradiction. There are, are a bunch of women in the other three gospels, but there's only one in John. It's real easy, real simple, not complicated. I'm just telling you what the eggheads are saying, but the eggheads don't get this. If Mary Magdalene is with the group of women who goes to the tomb at first, by definition, Mary Magdalene is there. And John just pulls her out. Say, not complicated, that's the fact. 
So he just says, she was the first there. The women were first, and John puts that first. Secondly, John tells us something very interesting, and I've wondered about this for years. He says this twice. He says, he ran faster than Peter. He was probably in his early 20s. Peter was probably a bit of a codger. Codger in those days was like late 30s. Sorry, millennials. But, I mean, he's, he's running. He gets to the tomb first, but he doesn't go in. He looks, but he doesn't go in. Peter, of course, like Peter does, he gets there and barges right through, right? But John makes a point of that. Now, is John just trying to say, I was faster? Remember, he's writing this in his 80s, maybe, 70s, 80s, maybe even 90. Okay, I don't think it's that big a deal to him by then. What I think he's putting us in here is because that's exactly how it happened. It's, we were there, this is what we saw, this is how it happened, you decide. That's what it is. And, and secondly, John describes it's the unique disposition of the, the grave clothes. We don't have time to get into this other than to say what Peter and John saw because of the original language. It, he, he uses a specific word and a, a specific form of that word to describe what he saw. It was bandages wrapped around a body that had been deflated like it was deflated balloon, like the body had just slipped out and they were in the exact same place you would expect it to do, except for the face cloth that had been on his face. It was folded up neatly and put in, in the right spot. Isn't that interesting? What? What would grave robbers be doing that for? And how would a body just slip out? You know, that's what he's, why'd he put it in there? Because he's saying, that's what I saw. And then finally, John says, guess what? We didn't really believe. We didn't really understand it. We didn't really get it. I mean, we kind of believed. We believed something that happened, but we didn't know what to believe. That's kind of how it goes. In fact, uh, let me show you from uh, the end of this passage in, in verses 8 to 10. It says, the other disciple... That is, John, that's what he refers himself to, uh, the other disciple. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb, see, there he is, also entered then, and he saw and believed. But then something happens. For they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So they believed, but they didn't really fully believe. So what did they do? So the disciples went away uh, to their own homes. <laughs> Why? Because they're chicken. And they're not sure what happened. They're thinking maybe somebody stole the body. So it's sort of like they believe, but I don't believe. What happened that caused them to believe? Well, you know, it wasn't these guys who were the first to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead, interestingly enough. Not fully believe, anyway. It was Mary Magdalene who had either followed them back and stayed there, or uh, that seems to be the implication, or she'd come back shortly thereafter, and she's at the tomb, and she's weeping in verses 11 to 18 of John chapter 20. She's weeping, she's crying, and wondering what's going on. She looks in, she sees a couple of angels, and they say, what's wrong? <laughs> it's, it's like, to her, it's like the biggest Captain Obvious question of, the, yeah, of history. What do you mean, what's wrong? Well, they stole in the body of my daughter. We, we just want to know where it is. And then somebody comes up behind her. She thinks it's the gardener and says, uh, why are you crying? And she says, sir, please, if you've stolen the body, tell us where, uh, where it is. And, she, and, and all of a sudden, this person says, Mary. And she recognizes it's Jesus standing there. And she grabs him and hugs him. And he says, hey, you got to cut that out for, for a lot of different reasons because I haven't ascended uh, yet or so forth. But here's the thing. She believed in the resurrected Jesus because she saw him right there. And then she was the first to go back and show and tell all that had been 
that she had seen. You see, that too is an interesting little fact, an interesting little eyewitness piece, because especially in those days, if you want this to hold up in court, if you want Christians to be able to defend themselves, you don't put the first witness, the primary witness, in the mouth and in the eyes of a former prostitute. You don't. And that's exactly how it plays. You see what I'm saying? It's, this is what, we were there, this is what we saw, you decide. That's how, how straightforward this is. Now, I want you to understand that um, uh, nobody doubts the historicity of Jesus. Nobody doubts that there was a person of name Jesus who was crucified. Nobody even doubts. I mean, I don't know if you knew this, but there are actually people who study the Bible for its literary content, for his, it, you know, trying to decide what's history and what's baloney. You know, they don't believe any of it, but they actually make a living studying the Bible for those reasons, which is weird to me, but that's what they do. Okay? And, and so there are secular, non-believing Bible scholars, and there are believing Bible scholars. Just like there were secular, non-believing people at, this, at that time, and there are, were believers in it, at that time. It's, it, nothing's that different in that regard. But here's the thing. Nobody today, no credible historian doubts that Jesus existed and that Jesus was crucified, that he died on a Roman cross. And there may have been a time when that was true, like when I was in college, you, uh, in that era, which we won't talk about how long ago that was, but the reality is, is you might have had a professor say, yeah, well, we're not even sure Jesus was a real person. Nobody says that anymore, okay? Nobody that's credible at all says that anymore. The other thing is, is there's this one other bit of information that I need to give you. I mean, you, 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 um, you think about John recording these things, and you say, how in the world, if he's that old, how's he remembering all this? Well, I'll give you a little secret. We Christians, we believe he had a super helper called the Holy Spirit to remember. But let's just lay that aside. Let's pretend that that's not there. Would you believe, if, if this was this cataclysmic that you saw a person alive who had formerly been dead, would you remember every detail of it to the day you died? I bet you would. But there's another person who is in another generation of this thing who also saw Jesus, but in a different form on a road called the Damascus Road. A guy that the whole thing kind of circles around, and that is the Apostle Paul. And I want to take you to one of his writings now because it sort of confirms, and not only confirms, but it sort of uh, expresses beyond uh, everything that we've seen so far. Number one, why he believes that the resurrection actually happened. And secondly, why it should matter to us. What difference it makes to us that Jesus rose from the dead. Why should that make any difference at all? And, 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 and the Apostle Paul, again, is one of those people that every credible scholar on the planet believes actually existed and believes that he was a major factor, the major person, the genesis of the Christian faith flowed through the Apostle Paul. That's how, in our view as Christians, God used Paul to bring that, but, but uh, in, in, in general, just basic, non-believing terms, Paul was the one who brought forth uh, and, and was the, the instigator in the biggest way the faith that we have today and that we call Christianity, okay? That's the case. For example, uh, in the New Testament, there are, you know, the Gospels, the four Gospels, then there's the book of Acts, 
and there's the book of Revelation at the end, but in between there's these, these, we call them books, but they're really letters, epistles, and there are 21 of those things, and 13 of those were written by Paul, and here's the thing, seven of those 13, uh, you know, the, the, the other um, the rest of the 13 have, have Paul's name on them or, or are pretty sure in legend and so forth, but, but the, the seven, no scholar, even secular scholars do not doubt that Paul actually wrote those, okay? He, those, those, and I'm not saying you should doubt the other ones. <laughs> I'm just telling you what the eggheads are doing. So here's, here's the thing. He, uh, he, there's no doubt that he wrote those seven books, the books like Romans and First and Second um, Corinthians, Galatians, uh, different ones, the Timothys. It's it's really clear to even the secular historians that he wrote those seven books. And I want to take you to one of those. In fact, if you've got a Bible or you've got a Bible at home, you can open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 because there's an amazing thing that Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15. And before I read you a section of it, I just want to tell you, in 1 Corinthians 15, he gives this long delineation, 58 verses by our count, this long delineation of what the resurrection means, why he believes it happened, that's the first thing, and what differences it makes to our lives now and on into the future. It's a really amazing piece of work, the whole thing is, is about uh, the resurrection of Jesus. And what you need to understand, what you need to know, and this is why I got my handy little board here, is that Jesus was crucified and died and was uh, put in that tomb right about here, somewhere between uh, 30 and um, 32 AD. Okay? Somewhere in, in that time frame. Paul, when he's writing the Corinthians, he writes uh, the, the letter of 1 Corinthians in 53 to 54 AD, somewhere in there. But what he says, and I'm about to read this to you, what he says is, is that I've already been there and I shared with you some information about what the gospel actually is. What, the, what actually happened, what was told to me years ago, I put it, gave it to you, and, and it was, uh, that was, that visit was in 52. So 52 to 32, that's 20 years. So I know, if you're Gen Z, you don't remember 20 years ago. You might not have been here. If you're a millennial, you probably do, even if you're in your 20s, you know, you say, you might remember, well, maybe you won't. It depends on how far into your 20s you are. If you're in your 30s, you go, yeah, I was 10, Yeah. If you're in your 40s, you go, oh yeah, I remember 20 years ago. If you were in um, your uh, 50s, you go, I'm 50. Uh, or if you're in your 60s, you say, that was last week, right? Right? I mean, 20 years is just not that long ago. Here, I'll give you an example that we shouldn't really re- uh, bring up on a happy day, but 20 year go- years ago this year was what? 9-11. I'll bet even if you were young, 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 then you remember what your parents' response was. I'll bet you remember certain images. And that was a tragic day, something you'd rather forget. Not a happy day. You see, what, what, what's, what's, what's interesting is, is that 
That's really a short time frame. Christians fully believed, and Paul was preaching, and he was well into his, his uh, missionary journeys by this time. Only 20 years later, it was already there. But that's, that's not even the end of it. What's really interesting uh, is, is how he conveys and what he conveys. Let me, let me just uh, sh- share with you the gospel that he says that he told everybody during his course of his missionary journeys. He, he lays it out here for the Corinthians. He says, now I make known to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you also stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold firmly to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So what he's saying here is, look, this is what somebody told me, this is what I told you, uh, and this is what I passed on to you, and now I'm reminding you of this, okay? So, got that? That's, that was passed on to him, and that, that's how it works. But here's what it is. Here's what he handed on. For I handed down to you as of first importance, this is the first importance, what I received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter. Paul always calls him by his other name, his Hebrew name. Then, uh, then to 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at, home, at one time. Watch this. Most of whom remain until now. Go knock on your neighbor's door and say, Bob, did you really see that? Right? But some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, and I am not fit uh, to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. What he's talking about there is he, he hated the church. He hated Christians. He hated Jesus until he went on that Damascus road and he saw Jesus and fell off his horse and ch- changed his whole life. But before that, he, you know, he, he always carried that sort of sense of humility with him because of that. But, but let's, let's go back to, to what he's saying. 20 years uh, after, Paul is telling us that all these people saw Jesus alive that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose from the dead, that's at 22. But here's the interesting thing. If you go back to the book of Galatians, Galatians is probably the first letter, uh, first book actually of the New Testament that we have, the oldest one, the one that was written first. Philemon, some people think that one came, you know, that one pager. But Galatians was Paul's uh, probably Paul's first letter. If it wasn't, it was his second letter. And that happened right here in about 44 A.D., now think about that. Let's pause for a second. Think about that. 44, 22, 32, 12 years. He was given the same information to people 12 years after the resurrection of Jesus. Exactly what he just told them about. Yep, Jesus rose from the dead. And have seen by 500 people. But that's not all. In the book of Galatians, he tells of a trip he made to the, uh, uh, the island of Cyprus, and he was starting a church there. And he tells us that he told them also exactly the same information around 37, maybe 38, but around 37 AD. That's five years after the resurrection. People were already believing it. And nobody had been able to come up with a credible story to shut it down. We have evidence in the Bible that they tried, but nothing credibly stuck because there was just too much 
uh, indication from people, you know, and Jesus kept showing up the, the 500 people and whatnot. But that's not the end of the story. I want to show you one more thing in that section of 1 Corinthians 15 that I just read for you that really should surprise you, unless you've heard me talk about it before or some other preacher talk about it before. This is stunning, stunning stuff. Because you see, embedded in 1 Corinthians 15 is a creed. What's a creed? Well, it's a a rhythmic statement or an easily remembered statement of really important information that can be passed on from person to person to person. And most often, it's, it's religious information that a creed is, is involved in, okay? And why would they do that in those days? Well, because most people couldn't read and write. If you went to the major cities like Rome or Athens, you'd probably have about 12 to 15% of the population could read and write. Outside of that, though, in the rural and the smaller towns, nobody could read and write. So how are you going to pass the gospel along? You're going to give them creeds. I mean, we have creeds. We have creeds, uh, religious creeds we still use today that maybe you don't know, but you do know some creeds. When you were in grade school, you learned some creeds that helped you learn how to read and write. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P. Remember, right? That's a creed, kind of like. And then at the end, just so you got it, so you understood why that was important, they tacked on this little end line that said, now I know my ABCs, soon I'll have my PhD, right? I know, there's another ending like, tell me what you think of me, but let's not go there because I don't want to cause conflict today. But there are other creeds. We learn how to spell with creeds. I before E except after C. You did go to grade school, that's great. See, that's, that's a creed, that's a, that's a little pithy little rhyme. Well, Paul has embedded in 1 Corinthians 15, in that statement we just read, a creed that tells all about the resurrection and the cross of Jesus. He says this, For I handed down to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the creed that everybody According to the scriptures, died on the cross, according to the scriptures, raised from the dead, according to the scriptures. That's the creed that everybody remembered. In fact, if you put it in English, that information, it, it, in sort of a, into the, it still sort of has a rhythm to it. Look at this. Basically what he said, you can go back and check the words, Christ died for our sins and was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. Christ died for our sins and was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. In fact, let's learn that creed. I'm going to ask everybody behind the camera to do this too. If you're in your living room and somebody went off to get some munchies uh, during the middle of the message, say it loud enough so they come running back. All everybody in the room, I want you to all say it with me, okay? Christ died for our sins and was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. Got the gospel all there right in one nugget. That's what Paul was trying to do. Let's do that again. Christ died for our sins and was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. We were there. This is what we saw. You decide. That's what that's there for. It's incredible. But here's the incredible thing about that creed. That creed isn't 12 years after Jesus rose from the dead. It's not five years after Jesus rose from the dead. 
It goes back to the beginning of the book of Acts. Most scholars, even non-believing scholars, believe that creed is the real creed that people were quoted to one another all the way back to within months, weeks, probably days of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Isn't that something? Now, that's great documentary information. That's really cool, Dwayne. But that, what does that mean? That's a good question. Paul goes on to tell us. Danae's already read some stuff for you. Uh, here's, here's throughout the rest of this, these 58 verses on the resurrection. For example, he says, if Christ has not been raised, then our faith or our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. What does in vain mean? It means it's worthless. It's meaningless. I've used this illustration before. It seems to get some street uh, cred, so let me just use it again. Let's pretend, and I know this, for people like me, this is a difficult thing to pretend, but pretend you're a good artist, okay? You're an artist. Okay, you're a writer, a sketch artist, painter, sculptor, musician, songwriter, and somebody sticks you in a room and says, okay, we're putting this piece of paper out here, we're putting this uh, model, modeling clay or whatever out here. We want you to do your best artwork right now. We want you to do this incredible thing. Pour your whole self into it. And, and we're going to give you two hours. Just, just, just pour yourself into this and you know, come up with that amazing idea that you had. And as they're leaving the room, they say, oh, by the way, we want you to leave it right there in the desk because it's going to be thrown in the trash after you're done. What? Yeah, just give it your all, but we're going to throw it away. That's what it means to be in vain. Why, would you pour yourself into that? No. <laughs> Paul's saying if the resurrection isn't, isn't real, then all our belief, our faith, it's in vain. Why have I been flapping my gums, Paul is saying, all these years? if the resurrection wasn't real. But then he goes on in verse 20 and other places say, the resurrection is real. In fact, verse 20, Christ has been risen from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Asleep is the New Testament code for having died. He's saying, that he, because of him, that means it's gonna happen for the rest of us. God, he's gonna do that for us. If we believe in him, that's why we believe it. That's why we uh, live into it. And another interesting thing about this whole uh, thing is, is that Paul doesn't even leave it there. Like I said, you should really read uh, the rest of 1 Corinthians 15. Because the, the Apostle Paul, uh, in, in, uh, at the end of this, summarizes the fact that death uh, is, uh, is not the end, Death is, a, is, in a sense, a new beginning. Is it hard? Yes. But, 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 but because Jesus moved through it and rose again from the dead, that's exactly what can happen for us. And, and it's all the, uh, based on the fact of whether or not it's really real, it's really, truly true. In fact, let me read you the last three verses of 1 Corinthians 15. It says, "'The sting of death is sin.'" When Jesus died on the cross, he took away the sting of death. It has no power anymore. It can't hurt us ultimately anymore. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. That is the rules that we break, that, that we sin against. We sin against our own rules, let alone, you know, who would deny we sin against God's rules? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus. And watch this. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be firm, immovable, 
always excelling in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Knowing that your labor is not in vain. You see, here's the reality. The first followers of Jesus re-engaged with Jesus not because of something they heard, because of something they saw. And there have been millions and billions of people who have seen through the eyes of John and Matthew and Mark and Luke and Paul or through their grandma and their grandpa's eyes or their mom and their dad's eyes or their friend's eyes. Millions and billions of people who have believed based on what they had been told that they saw through those eyes. And, and, and that's the reality. And Paul's saying when that happens for you, your faith is not in vain. What does that mean? It means that if you have had, uh, you know, like some of us have right now, someone who is a loved one, who has a terminal illness of some kind, and those are hard days to walk through, you know what that means? That means those are not wasted days. That means they're not in vain. They're hard. They're not easy. And we shouldn't take away from that, but the reality of those days are precious. Those are not in vain. And that the life they've lived is not in vain because they're going to be alive again if they believe in Jesus. What that means is if you're living in a town that has gone completely post-Christian in a society that's progressively post-Christian, Portland, Oregon, and you're just feeling like every single day you're getting smacked because, you know, if somebody finds out you're a Christian, you've got to watch what you say, blah, 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 blah. Your faith is not in vain. If you're a police officer that's gotten called downtown to some riots and you've been called awful things and rockets have been, you know, fireworks rockets have been shot at you and other junk's been thrown at you and you know, your family's worried about you, your faith, your work for Christ, which is the work he's given you, is not in vain. You know what else is amazing? Your faithfulness is not in vain. When you get on a plane or collect some money and get on a plane or use your own money, and you, you go to places to people you don't even know and risk your life to care for people that are in need, your faithfulness isn't in vain. When you work in the children's ministry and some three-year-old asks you a question and you go, uh, man, in the, in the back of your mind you're going, I don't know the answer to this question. You know what? Your faithfulness isn't in vain. When you give to your church so that the gospel can go forth, your faithfulness is not in vain. Your faithfulness and the work that God has given you, it's not in vain. But here's another interesting thing. If you're curious about things, you say, you know, I've never quite heard this story put this way before. Your curiosity's not in vain. You're, you're, you're wondering about it's not in vain. You're, if, if you're considering coming back to church after years or a year, coming back to church, not in vain. The days that we've spent in a pandemic lockdown, not in vain. None of it is wasted or worthless because of the resurrection of Jesus. He's still here. He's still working. He's still alive. And so are we. That's what Paul's trying to say. And the truth is that the resurrection changes all of that. The, the, the truth is, is that these by living into what they saw and what they told us, that it is possible to have a new life 
by which we're transformed, we're freed from the sins. Remember, Christ died for our sins and was buried. But then he rose from the dead and was seen. If you are a person who is considering possibly re-engaging with Jesus, whether you're a brand new person coming to this or whether you're a person who's been a part of church for a long, long time, I want to invite you to do it today, right here, in this moment. So if everybody would just bow your heads and hearts in prayer with me. I just want to lead us in prayer. And if that's the desire of your heart, just make it real simple. It's really what's on your heart in expressing that heart to God and just saying, Lord Jesus, I believe that you came and died on the cross for my sins and that you were buried and that you rose again from the dead and was, were seen by all of those people. And I believe that you've been seen in a different way by the people that have come after them. People maybe even close in my life, thank you for coming for me. Would you come into my life and free me from my sin and free me from the fear and the power of death? And then just say, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. That's all you need to do. Heavenly Father, I love you. We love you. And we're so taken aback by the wonder of what it is you've done. It never gets old seeing this. And Lord, I just pray that you would touch every single heart within the sound of this service. And I pray that you would help them, cause them by the power of your spirit to experience your presence today in the way that only you know they need to experience it. We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you so much for coming and sacrificing for us. And today, we thank you for being alive and being here and promising to never leave us or forsake us. It's in your name that we pray, thanking you for all the goodness and the blessings of this day and of each other. Amen.